here we are, it's Easter Sunday. Now for some of you, this is your one chance, right? This is the one time you go to church because you think you probably should. It is Easter and all. But I'm going to be honest with you. Um, this resurrection is more than a pertinent day once a year. This isn't like whether we're looking for a hedgehog or a groundhog to find out whether or not we're going to have more uh, winter. If that were the case, they certainly never came out, did they? What we're looking at today, really, to be honest, is maybe my one shot at speaking with you. Now, for some of you, I know you come here every week, so I know that we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God. But there are others of you, perhaps this is your one shot to listen So I beg you to to hear me patiently. My challenge to you today is to present a Jesus that is separate from any other person that has ever walked the face of the planet. And that's key to me. I have not chosen to serve a politic or a religion per se, which in most opinions is a politic, or an ideal or a mindset. I didn't surrender to the evidence of an empty tomb. I've met Jesus. And having met him, I'll never be the same. Jesus is not only alive, he's still alive, and he dies no more. And so today I'd like to present to you in this small period of time that we have, and maybe smaller than what we're normally used to, so we can get back to just jumping into praise, but I don't want to move this time any shorter, is that I would like to present Jesus as the only one, because the, prayer, the comments he makes about himself demand for him to prove it, and you would be a fool to believe him any other way. And I'd like to present him under three particular cases. First, as the person, Jesus. Second, as his purpose, the cross. And then third, as his power, and that's in the empty tomb. So the real question we start with then is, what does the Bible say about Jesus? And we're going to dig into the text in regards to the resurrection here in a moment. But will you go to the Lord with me, please, in prayer as we seek him in this time? Pray with me, would you please? God, I just pray today by the power of your Holy Spirit that you administer to every person here. Lord, you know where we're at. You know what it is that we're seeking. Lord, you know what it is that, um, that, that is in our hearts at this moment. Lord, you know those questions that we carry, the doubts that we've fostered. Lord, you know those weaknesses, those pains, those regrets. Lord, you know the guilt that we struggle with, Lord. You, Lord, you know, you know every speck of dust underneath our shoes. You know every vapor of water within our breath. And in that, God, today, you know how to speak fluent every one of us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would minister. That you would do so much more, Lord, than just have me speak. Lord, that you would today profoundly, personally speak to every one of us, to our hearts, to our minds, through our ears. So give us ears to hear. Lord, give us hearts that would receive. Lord, I pray today that you would so powerfully minister to us. That all we can do at the end is say, yes, Jesus, yes, you and only you. I pray that you would embolden Christians who maybe have been compromising in the area of who you are and the importance of what you've done. I pray, Lord, for those who have yet to say yes to you. Today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day that they could say, on Easter 2013, I accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, now minister, I pray speak. May we love you more. May we know you more. May we experience you in whatever way you've ordained now. Redeem every second. Immerse me with your spirit. Immerse me in your spirit. Fill me with your spirit and do through me what only you can now. Redeem every second, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. And here's that first thing. The person. Who is this Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does Jesus say about Jesus? And that's really important because either you're going to make up your Jesus or you're going to accept the real one. Now, Jesus had warned us that after his coming, many false Christs would come. People that were calling themselves the Messiah, that would call themselves the leaders. And so, understand, just because someone makes that claim, anyone who makes a claim and says, you, have, you should surrender your life to me, you have a right to check that. You should. It would be foolish not to. Well, listen to these claims biblically. Now, understand, if you make up your own Jesus, I guarantee you, first of all, you'll make up a worse one because he's perfect. But second of all, you're going to make up one, to be honest, who's not even Lord, because you're going to be the boss, and he's just going to be a soft shoulder that will forgive everything you want. But he's so much more to be reckoned with. 
This is what it says in Scripture, by the way. First of all, in John 14, 6, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, get that. Now, if that was enough verse, that should be enough to insult you. Now, listen. Jesus would say, blessed is he who is not offended by me. The question is not, is this offensive? The question is not, does this take me and startle me? The question is, is it true? This morning I was on my way to get a bat on my way here. And I went and paid my money. And just as the guy was about to start, he came running outside because of one of those guys that was writing up a ticket because he had parked in front of it. And he thought he was safe. He proceeded to yell at him for about 20 minutes. I'm kind of waiting for my bath. I kind of figured this isn't the best time to go. Excuse me. Can I get, can you get back to my sandwich? So, and the reason I say that, and, and the interesting thing about it was, is the guy was in the wrong. He had parked in a place where he wasn't supposed to, but he kind of figured that somehow, because maybe he owned the shop, maybe because it was Easter, thought maybe people would be hugging each other and giving each other turkeys and candy and eggs, then maybe he wouldn't get a ticket. Well, he got a ticket instead. Now, no matter how much he was offended by the fact that if you parked there, you got a ticket, ignoring it only caused him to get the ticket. Now, you could be offended by the truth, but if it's the truth, you still have to deal with it. And this is what Jesus says, that I am the way, which speaks of exclusivity. I am the truth, which speaks of exclusivity. I am the life, exclusivity. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you were to sit Jesus down here and ask him, what did he think of Buddha? What does he think of Muhammad? What does he think of Paramahansa Yogananda? What does he think of Burkham Yoga? What does he think of you doing a lot of really good works? What does he think of you actually giving all your money to the Pope and living somewhere in desolation? Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You'd say, well, can I pray to your mom? Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Can I pray to a saint? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Can I give all my money to the church? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, you don't have to like it, but that doesn't make it untrue. And the bottom line believer, please understand that if you try to tell the world that Jesus is part of the salad bar of religions, I'll have a little bit of Jesus, and I'll have a little bit of Buddha, I'll have a little bit of this, I'll have a little bit of meditation, and let's throw some philosophy in as sort of a side dish to kind of flower it up a little bit. In the end of it all, Jesus would be the one who would disagree with you. What you're giving them is not the Jesus of the Bible. You need to know that. Now understand, my job here today, my ministry, my calling, is not here to woo you into a love affair with God. I would love for you to do that. But first and foremost, it is to present the real Jesus so you know who you're falling in love with. Because the last thing I want to be guilty of is a bait and switch where you kind of fell for someone that just kind of says, do whatever you want, make up your own set of rules, and that's cool, and then call me Lord in the end, and somehow we're going to say that's okay. Jesus doesn't play that game. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Only one person that's going to be there to stand between you and the Father, and whether you're going to be innocent or guilty, and that's Jesus. That's who the person is. In Isaiah 43.11, interestingly enough, it says, I, even I, the Lord, am, am He. Beside me there is no Savior. The Lord has made clear in 43.11 that there's one Savior, and that Savior is the Lord. In 1 John 4.14, it says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son as Savior of the world. Now, that's simple math. A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. The Lord's the Savior, Jesus is the Savior, and since He's the only one, Jesus is Lord. That's all right until you get to 1 Timothy 2.3, where it says it's God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, if you do that simply, Jesus is the only Savior. He is the Lord, and He is God. It's just that simple. Now, here's the interesting part about it. That if you were to line up every religious leader... And ask them, which one of them would want to die for you? Which one would volunteer to save you and pay the price that is necessary to redeem you? 
Only one volunteered. And the good news is, he was the right one. Aside from the fact that he was the only person who never sinned that walked the face of the earth, he was also the only one who ever sacrificed such a thing, and we'll get to that in a moment. It tells us then as well, by the way, in John 3.18, listen to these words. These aren't my words. These are the scripture. And if you have a problem, I have to tell you, you're going to have to take it up with the author. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Scripture makes really clear two things, which, by the way, we're going to clear up. One is, everyone isn't a child of God. You might not like that. Scripture says we are all born children of wrath. That's not as good. doesn't look as good on a card. But my God is into adoption. And he will adopt anyone that will call on the name of his son. Now listen, the Bible says Jesus is the only begotten. Monogenes in the Greek. Mono means one. Genes is the same word we get the word gene from. It's quite simple. Jesus is the only one from the Father's gene pool. That's the idea. And can I just say, we have two children. As you can see, one of them is a little darker than I am. The other one, and I don't want to pick on her, and I don't want to embarrass her, because I don't want you all to have to look at her. But she looks a little bit more like me and her mother. Her mother happens to be right over there, and you'd probably say she looks like her mother, and for that we can all say God is merciful. (laughs) Now, which one of them is my children? They both are. It's not in question. Which one do I love more? Well, don't ask them. They would, I'd like to think that each one would say themselves. But only one of them comes from our gene pool. But they're both our children and we love them both just as much as the other. Scripturally, the father has one son. But he has many more children that aren't begotten but adopted. For which... You have the privilege of being one. If you said yes to the gift of Jesus, you've been adopted. God has placed within you the spirit of adoption for which you cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. And my God loves, listen, I know this is going to be hard to accept, but my God loves you just as much as he does Jesus. The only difference is he looks a lot more like him. Jesus says in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am he, or literally I am, you'll die in your sins. Now can I remind you, that's Jesus' words. So when somebody comes and peddles to you a soft sheep carrying, Jesus takes everyone and lets them stay the same way as they are, can I just tell you, Jesus says, it's his way or no way. Because his way is Yahweh. So this is the simplest of it. The Bible calls Jesus, and I guess you can kind of see that, right? The Bible calls Jesus the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only Savior, the only begotten Son of God, the only hope, and God himself. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Do you know him? You say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I hear this group of people that they say that, you know, that there's one God and he has no son. Well, you understand that was 500 years after Jesus came and it started with this. I have a new idea. God has no son. If you disagree with me, I'll kill you. Well, it's amazing how that kind of thing spreads after a period of time. But that doesn't change the truth. You kill people, it doesn't change the law. You're still going to have to stand under it. Whether you like it or not, Muhammad had to stand before Jesus. Did you ever think about that? Do you know what also says in Scripture? That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you've got a knee, it's going to bow. If you've got a tongue, it's going to confess Jesus is Lord. Can I just say, beat the rush, do it now. 
Now is a good time. Now is a really good time. Now listen. If somebody were to come up to you and give you this kind of thing, even if they never sinned in front of you, you have a right to say, who do you think you are? And then when they tell you, you have a right to say, why don't you prove it? Well, let's be honest. If Jesus is the only one, then he must do what only one can do to prove it. Is that fair? And that takes us from the first one, which is the person, to the second, which is his purpose, and to the cross. This is what Jesus says in John fifteen thirteen. He says, Greater love have no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 tell us why. Colossians, by the way, is sort of like cliff notes. It's like the summary of Galatians through Philippians. And it tells us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Now understand, that's the problem with every other religion. About two years ago, we have this time every night where we read with our, with our girls, each one, we have our devotion. And uh, you sometimes that evokes questions. Now, they're interesting, the, the kind of questions that come out of Shantae versus Ruthie. Ruthie's are usually a lot more practical. Things like, did David wear shoes? Were they fashionable? And, and I remember once t- Ruthie was going to sleep. She's nine now. And, and she had said, Dad, how many religions are there in the world? And you pray for a quick moment because you just know that sometimes kids ask questions like this. You know this, right? Because they don't want to go to sleep. And they're like, hey, could you recite to me something that makes you look cool so I don't have to sleep for an hour? You know, um, Ruthie's not one of those kind of people. Ruthie's kind of like, hi, I'm tired. That's about it, usually. And by God's grace, the response was something that still lingers in my head, and that's, honey, there are only two. What? Well, there's the one where you do all the performance, and then God adjudicates. God or whatever it is. Think about it. You initiate You perform, you work really hard, you do your thing, you make your trip, you do your five this, you give to the poor, you've done your mitzvahot, you've done your things, you've made sure you ate right or didn't eat right, or whatever the case is, you made sure you kept yourself pure, whatever it is, and at the end of it all, you present this thing as some kind of package before whatever it is, and that thing decides, is it good enough or not? Is your good outweigh your bad? Should you be reincarnated as a cockroach? Whatever it is. That's one side of it. And to be honest, that is everything but the Bible. Are you aware of that? No matter what it is, you are going to initiate and it's going to respond. The problem is, scripturally, you're dead. And that really means that the only thing you can do is rot and stink. Imagine offering that to God. I've stunk for you. I've rotted for you. Check out my decay. God's like, congratulations, you stink. Scripture says when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, trespasses and sin, when we were yet his enemies in our hearts and our minds, when we were dead yet walking in the lusts of our flesh, you know what that means? We were spiritual zombies. You think that's a new idea? It's scriptural. There you go. No, we're dead in our transgressions and yet walking according to the lusts of our own mind and heart. And it says in our eyes, and it says, we were actually as if we were controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath. That's how we started. We started dayid. So imagine if I came up to you when you were dead and I says, you know, if you did a few really good things, maybe what? I'm going to spray some cologne on you so you don't smell so bad for a little bit? I'll dip you in formaldehyde? You're still going to rot. This is what scripture says. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped away the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken him out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Don't miss this. This is the other side of it. God did the performing. When you were dead in your trespasses and sin, Jesus came to earth. When you were his enemy, Jesus died for you. And he took all your filth, all your muck, all your nastiness, all the stuff you wouldn't even let your mother know. You wouldn't even let yourself know. And he nailed it to himself on the cross so that all of your punishment could be properly paid for. And that is the difference. 
God did the performance, and then he comes to you and he says, now you make the decision. Do you see the difference? In one case, you did it all and said, God, what do you think? How you like me now? He says, you're still dead. On the other side of it, God did all the work because only God can give a dead man life. Even from the very beginning, Adam was formed, Genesis 2-7, excuse me, and then God breathed into him the breath of life. Don't forget that. That will be pertinent to our text here in just a moment. On the other side of it, say, well, I believe God's kind of merciful. But listen, there's no other way God can be merciful and just. Let me explain. Oh, no time. Let me sum up. All right. Listen, on one side of it, if you're going to be just, every wrong thing must be punished. Fair enough. But if you're going to be merciful, you're not punishing someone for their bad deed. So how do you be merciful and just? The only way is to properly punish everything. But you can't pun- I can't punish Ati for Juan's things. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. Or Juan for Ati's. I'll just make it fair for the moment. We'll, we'll have counseling later. Um, because Juan has his own sins to pay for. Ati has her own sins to pay for. <laughs> but listen, the only one that would be equipped to do that had to be sinless. And the only one equipped for that is God. That is why any of these other religious leaders couldn't volunteer to be your savior because they were sinful like the rest. Now follow me on this. This was never God's plan B. Even from the very beginning when you went to temple or tabernacle before it was even a permanent structure and you showed up there, there was a cover charge. Did you know that? And the cover charge was a sacrifice without blemish. It had to be perfect. So Gina was going to temple, la, 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 going to temple, la, 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 going to temple. And she comes and she brings with her a spotless lamb. And when she does, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, or whoever's working there at the moment comes, and he never sizes up Gina, he sizes up her sacrifice. No, don't get twisted. Follow me on this. Now, the point is this. He always looked and said, is the sacrifice perfect? Not the sacrifice, sir. Do you get that? Can I just say God set that up for a reason? When you stand before him and this life is over and this jersey is retired, you're going to look at God and God's going to look at you. And it isn't like he's going to look and say, well, Sam, did you live perfect? That's a no-brainer. I don't know Sam, but I know he didn't live perfect because he's human. The question is, what's your sacrifice? Now, if you just say, it's my good works. Are you, are, really, your good works are without blemish? They were perfect? Wow. How did you do it? Because I didn't. Your church attendance, your kindness, your I'm a good person, that's perfect, huh? But you can choose Jesus, who was tempted in every way yet without sin. Can the Father not accept his own Son? Don't you see the grace in that? It's not about how good you are. It's about how good your sacrifice is. And Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Can I just say it this way? Jesus came to seek, to serve, and to save even to the least, the last, and the lost. That's how it looks. The question then is, what are you going to do with them? So when we get to the second one, let me just say that what the cross says is, it's sobering. He came sober. He came serious. He came for sacrifice. He came to surrender. He came as Savior. That's why we don't like it. You see, when we think about the cross, if that's all there is, and please hear me because I'm almost done. We're two-thirds there now. Listen. If all we had was the cross, who wants that? I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I have to stop doing drugs. I have to stop doing all those things that the world has sold me as fun. And I've bought into it because I don't know anything better. And if I don't know anything better, it's the only thing I know. And so I say, here's the cross of Jesus. And you're like, ah! Whoa, wait a minute, that doesn't work. Right? Because in it, what I'm saying is, wait a minute, all there is is sacrifice. I have to be sober, and I have to be surrendered, and I have to be sacrificial. See, but the story of the gospel doesn't end at the cross. It begins there. Because at the cross, what my God showed me was how serious he was about me. That he'd rather die than live without me. That he loved me so much that if that's what it took to get Mike, he was going to pay it. 
If that's what it took to get James, he was going to pay it. If that's what it took to get Lucas, he was going to pay it. And if it took the nails, and if it took the whip, and if it took the spit, he was going to pay it. That's how serious he was about you. Who else is going to stand in the sandals of Jesus and compare to that? But that's just his purpose. But that's not even his power. We met the person, and he said, I am the only way. And if we were to say he's the only way by his declarations, he's also the only way by his purpose. Nobody else ever said they came to save me. Or they could say they want to lead me or give me wisdom or give me information, but they did not come to save me, nor could they. But Jesus came to save me, and that he did. Well, if that's the reason we have a problem with it, no wonder why it says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. When you hear that message, you're going to respond to it in one of two ways. You're either going to say it's foolishness or you're going to say it's the power of God. Which one are you going to say? Because it shows you where you're at. But can I just say what the cross says to me? Paid in full. That's what it says. There is no sin left to pay for. No crime left to be punished. It is all done. Will you say yes to that gift? I'm going to give you that chance in just a moment. But can I say this? How do I know that Jesus' death on the cross was enough? You have a right to ask that. If he demands your surrender, well, don't you think you have a right to ask? Well, then wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe he was delusional, kind, but delusional. How do I know it was enough? Can I give you exhibit three? And that takes us to our text. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? Now, I don't know how many of you have done it with me, but I have really, really loved walking with Jesus this week. It was Sunday. Remember last Sunday, Jesus came into the temple precinct crying his eyes out because the people had declared him king, but not the king he wanted to be. On Monday, he cleared the temple. On Tuesday, they challenged him. What authority do you do these things? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Oh, there was this woman and she was married to all of these men and they, in the end, who is she going to be married to? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? That was Tuesday. And he fielded them all and shut them down. But that wasn't Jesus' ministry. Let it not be yours either. Some of you are gifted arguers, and you can take that and think, well, all I want to do is argue with people. Ask around of those who have accepted the gift of Jesus and find out how many of them were argued into Christ. Because what the world is starving for is evidence. On Wednesday, the line got really thick. If you remember when Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and the makers of the And he starts to speak about them being sons of hell and making those that they proselytize more sons of hell than even themselves. Oh yeah, the line got really thick because on Thursday he was arrested. On Thursday it was Passover. On Thursday, he stood before the religious leaders, Annas privately, the father-in-law of the high priest, Caiaphas, the high priest, and then the council. And then came Friday morning. And on Friday morning, if you remember, that was the secular trials. It was Pilate, and then it was Herod, and then it was Pilate again, wanting to release him, knowing that he had been handed over because of envy. Do you want me to release your king? Oh, release to us Barabbas! And with that, and some of the most amazing things you'll ever read, like, I find no guilt in the man, so let's beat him and let him go. What beat him? How did I get that in there? And it was noon that things got dark. And it was three that Jesus would die. And that was Friday. Saturday came and the only thing we have in Scripture are religious leaders. Aren't they the ones who should be taking the day off? It is Sabbath. Saying, you know, we better get a guard out there to Pilate so that no one steals the body. But now it's Sunday. And this is the day that everything changes. And just like we saw with the frantic women and the goofy guys, there's more than an empty tomb to deal with. Follow me on this. That's kind of small, isn't it? 
Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, not Salami, brought spices that they might come and anoint him very early in the morning on the first day of the week. Now, please know this. That if you were, if you loved someone, and it happens even in Israel to this day, there is an anointing that can take place up to seven days after a person's death. That just shows your dedication. And these girls would rather be with a dead Lord than a living anyone else. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, "Who will roll away the stone from the door from the door of the tomb for us?" I mean, the, the gals kind of overlooked kind of a really big issue, and that's an eleven and a half ton stone. But love makes you do things like that. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Now there's some that always try to reason things away. But you know, anytime you try to do that, it becomes a bigger miracle than the one you have to deal with initially. And this is one of them. They'll say, well, if you actually read the original manuscripts, which nobody did that says this, what they were saying is the angel actually just said, he's not here, you're at the wrong tomb, girls, go see where they laid him, he's down the way. But the the text here makes very clear, Jesus is risen. That's the message, and by the the way, can I remind you, that speaking with him is an angel. And an angel has a message, and the message isn't, go to the right tomb. The message is he isn't here because he's alive. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. See the place where they laid him? Now go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and you'll see him there just as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb. They trembled and were amazed, but they said nothing to anyone, for they were amazed or afraid. I'm sorry. Can I just say, here's the problem with an empty tomb. An empty tomb will breed curiosity. I'll grant you that. An empty tomb says, well, there's a body missing. It's the same thing as trying to argue Jesus by, by you know, design. I mean, it will give you the concept that somebody out there is something, but you still feel like you have the right to invent them as you go along. An empty tomb says that there are some possibilities. And of course, the more you roll over them, the more you realize how ridiculous any of them could be except Jesus being alive. But in that, it breeds curiosity. But let me tell you what it doesn't breed. Boldness. That's the problem. If all you've got is an empty tomb. Well, some people might do it this way. Well, you know, I, I saw this place and I started to rot and decay, but things are a little bit better now. They're a little nicer now. I went to church. People are nicer. My environment's a little nicer. It's not going to transform you. It will just confuse you. Intrigue you. Jesus never said, Empty tomb, that's all you get. Be one yourself. But it does testify. Somewhere down the line, Peter and John are told, and even as we saw with the guys, that's what happens next. What we'll read then is, Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, that were going to the tomb, by the way, the other disciple's writing this gospel, and it says they both ran together, and that other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. There it is. And he's the one who wrote it. And he, stooping down and looked in, saw the linen cloths lying there, and they did not go in. Simon Peter came following him, I want to make sure you knew that, and went into the tomb and they saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, in case he didn't get it the other two times, went in also and he saw and believed. Yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. Notice here, they got a little bit more information. They got more than the fact that there's an empty tomb for which they know they have to reconcile. At this point, they get to the tomb now. John, now a little bit maybe trying to be careful and kosher, the younger gets there first, but then he kind of gets and kind of peeks in for a second, and that's about as far as he's going to get. Peter, on the other hand, just like classic Peter, dashes straight in. Nothing stops Peter. He's never been known for stopping. And so into the tomb he goes. And when he gets into the tomb, he sees the strangest thing. Now understand, when we read about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the guys who had anointed Jesus, they brought 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh. Now, for some of you, that's your body weight. Oh, not mine. That's not so funny. Just kidding. 
Now you take a hundred pounds of a gelatinous goo and you wrap it in linen and you wrap it around a person and then you cover them in the, in the goo and then you wrap it around the person and you cover them in the goo. You do this three or four times. And then you put them in the cool of the garden. What do you think happens to that thing? It becomes like a body cast. Now think about that for a second. Jesus is wrapped up like a body cast in a tomb where there are over 300 different bacteria alone that should eat his flesh. And there, all of a sudden, Peter walks in, and you think, if you're going to steal the body, how do you get it out of that? It's not just that you undress it. Who wants to steal a dead, naked guy? Now, that's sick on every level, but it goes beyond that, because not only that, but you kind of have to pop him out of that thing. I mean, it isn't like that. I mean, that thing's hard now, and it's wrapped around his neck, and then there's a handkerchief. I mean, it's going to take a real supernatural act. I mean, there's another miracle of that alone. And so all of a sudden, Peter walks in and he sees this kind of cocoon thing, and then he sees the hinky folded up really nicely on the side, and you kind of go, now, if somebody were to steal that, would they have folded that? Would you think, they'd be in a little bit of a hurry, and they're like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. We can't leave the place messy. Let's go. You know, we don't get that. With a guard there, four guys that one of them, falling asleep, would have had them all killed by the Roman, by the Roman soldiers. And by the way, their entire city they came from. The Romans were very serious about that. One guy falls asleep. They, what they do is if a guy starts getting tired on a Roman guard, four guys at a time, three hours at a shift, he starts falling asleep, they would take a torch and set your little moo-moo you know, skirt on fire. That keeps you awake. Works really well. Matter of fact, Jesus would say, okay, stay and watch and keep your garments. That's kind of the idea here. You really don't want your, you want your trousers on fire? Fall asleep. And that's the idea here. Now, with all of that, all of a sudden, you kind of realize Peter walks in and he's like, what is this? John now kind of looks at these things. Oh, I guess he's in the tomb. I, I should probably go too then, huh? I mean, if he's going to be in trouble. So he walks in too then and he looks and John writes, I look and believe. But what did he believe? Because it says they didn't even know the scripture yet that he would be risen from the dead. So they kind of, what did John believe? John believed he's like, because you can imagine Peter's in there and he's like, hey, hey, the grave clothes are in here. And John's like, are you serious? Come on, really? Come on. So he kind of peeks in and he looks in and he's like, yeah, I believe they are. Let's go home. And that's what we read. The both of them went home. But they didn't stay there. Now what would it be like? You're sitting at home and you're thinking, oh, this is the weirdest day ever. I can't be here. I can't be here. This, this is too weird. So all of a sudden, imagine, somewhere down the line, someone's at someone's house because we know all of the disciples are together except for it appears to be Judas is gone by this point. And then they're sitting there and all of a sudden we get to our next text. And this is where everything changes. It says then in John 20, verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst. Everything changes now. I'm not here to declare to you an empty tomb, though I've been to both the Church of the Sepulcher and Gordon's tomb on several occasions. Could be a third option. It really doesn't matter. The important thing to know is not only is it empty, the one who borrowed it for a weekend is still alive. And he came and he stood in their midst. And he said to them, Shalom, peace. They were petrified. These great apostles of faith freaked out. And it wasn't the first time they thought Jesus was a ghost. It's at least the third. Twice on the water. Well, at least once on the water. But let's face it. None of you think probably what's going to happen is Jesus is going to raise from the dead today. And the worst part about it is, you just looked at an empty cocoon and a lovely folded napkin. And you went home. But which of you thought, yeah, probably what happened is, since Jesus will probably be able to walk through walls, so what big, what's the big deal about a cocoon? Jesus will be like, oh, we're done with that. All right, off we go. Now understand, if Jesus could walk through walls, that means that he didn't have to roll away the stone for him. He didn't roll away the stone to get Jesus out. He rolled away the stone to get us in. So we could look at least and go, hmm, this isn't right. This is so illogical and unscientific. 
You know, God is bigger than science. You're aware of that, right? Now, yeah, people are like, well, no, 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 no. Unless I can understand him. If your God is big enough to be fully understood, how big is he? My God created the universe with a couple words. That's pretty fun. But he's bigger than my understanding, and he's much big. He's so big, he's big enough to handle problems I can't, including my sin. Now, Jesus ultimately will say to them, hey, peace, which is to this day still classic approach to a person. But it didn't end with that. Chapter 20, verse 20, here's your 2020 vision. He says to them, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad. Before that point, they weren't glad. They were freaked out. That's the idea. But they were glad now when they saw the Lord. And Jesus then says to them again, Shalom. As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. But look at verse 22. When he said this, he breathed on them. And you'd think, that's weird. Not if he's God. Because the whole book started with a, with a man created that wasn't alive until God breathed in him. And then it doesn't happen again where man really isn't alive until God breathes on him. It only makes sense to me. And you think, well, I don't have a lot to offer God. Good, because God works great with nothing. He created the universe out of nothing. Give him your nothing. Well, what I have is death. Yeah, he knows that. He is the only one equipped the only one qualified, and dare I say, the only one willing to take your crimes, your filth, your sin upon himself, conquer it at the grave, and leave it there. So what does that empty tomb say to us today? That empty tomb says that death is defeated, that condemnation is conquered, and the condemner himself has been crushed. In the simplest sense, it means new life. So my question to you again is, have you received him? In the end of it all, Jesus has done all the work. And the only thing left is your yes or no. Now, please hear me. In this room, there are more than just empty tombs. There are new lives. I could ask, how many of you has God delivered from an addiction? How many of you has God touched and restored your marriage? How many of you has God healed physically, emotionally, and we could perform the evidence here, but in the end of it all, it's not just that God took us from those things, it's that he replaced them. I was addicted. I was a selfish, nasty, hateful man, bitter and violent. I don't... I, I, can't think of a time in my life I've ever loved people more than I do now. It is astounding. It's not just that God took away my bad. He moved in. Jesus isn't here to remodel you. He isn't here to relocate you. He isn't here to re-decorate you. He is here to reinvent you. So you might say, well, Jesus loves us so much, he'll take us just as we are, and for that I say, amen, true. But he loves you way too much to leave you that way. So don't tell God what he can touch and can't if he's your Lord. Because you can't say, no, Lord. Or as the one who was about to, trying to talk about getting an inheritance, he said, no, let me first. You can't say, no, Lord, or Lord, and then me first. So listen, I'm going to put up a prayer. And that's really hard to read. I'm going to read it to you. 
just to help. And I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, I'm going to ask you to, to just take a moment in quiet and ask, God, is this for real? And if it is, and I am sure it is, then I'm going to repeat a prayer, the same prayer, the second time. And I'm going to ask if you agree to repeat it with me. The Bible says if you are willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, not you might, you could, God will take a vote later, he says you will be saved. But you've got to be real. And here's what the prayer says. Listen closely. God in heaven, you have shown me through your only begotten Son, Jesus, that you want me. But I am a sinner stained in my guilt. But in your perfect love for me, you sent Jesus to pay my price on the cross. That cross proved your love in total sacrifice just to give me your innocence. I believe my sins were fully paid there when Jesus died. Your empty tomb shows me my guilt, my spiritual death, and all my condemnation were conquered, defeated, and vanquished. As Jesus has risen, you invite me to new life, forgiven, free, and totally transformed. So I say yes. Yes to my Lord Jesus and his gift for me. Yes to your adoptive love. And in return, I surrender my life to you. I'm yours. I'm yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to just have you take a moment and let the Lord speak to you. If you've never said yes to this gift, let today be your day. If you have, let today be the day of rededication where we don't play the Jesus plus game, but just Jesus. Take that moment now, would you please? by your Holy Spirit. You've told us that your Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so, Lord, as you have the power to convict, convict, convince us not only of our need, but, Jesus, that you are the Savior. And that today you've come to deliver us from the penalty of our sin and make us new. All right, friends, beloved. I'm about to read this prayer. Buck up. Be bold. Pray it with me. And here we go. I ask you to repeat after me. God in heaven... You have shown me through your only begotten Son, Jesus, that you, love, that you want me. But I am a sinner, stained in my guilt. But in your perfect love for me, you sent Jesus to pay my price on the cross. That cross proved your love in total sacrifice just to give me your innocence. I believe my sins were fully paid 
there when Jesus died. Your empty tomb shows me my guilt, my spiritual death, and all my condemnation were conquered, defeated, and vanquished. As Jesus has risen, you invite me to new life, forgiven, free, and totally transformed. So I say yes. Yes to my Lord Jesus and His gift for me. Yes to your adoptive love. And in return, I surrender my life to you. I'm yours. I am yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, I pray right now for those who have prayed that prayer today. Who have committed their lives to you. Who have accepted this gift, Lord. And I know, Lord, they have, there are beginning an adventure that lasts for the rest of their life. They're about to discover things that they never thought possible. Give them that excitement. Lord, give them that hunger inside for your word. Give them that blessing, Lord, of that time in prayer. Bless them with a healthy fellowship where they could grow and be around others who love you. Oh, Lord, today, today, Lord, I pray that you would rock the house by, Lord, by taking that which was, was in us, Lord, that was so full of death and darkness. And now, Lord, fill us with the joy of your presence that's in abundance. I pray you would give us boldness. I pray, Lord, that you would ignite Christians right now. Lord, that maybe have been compromising about maybe Jesus and. But today they realize there is nothing but Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. Jesus, you in the garden said if there be any other way, there is no other way. And as insulting as that may be, that doesn't make it any less true. So I thank you, Jesus, for wanting me, for dying for me. Thank you, Lord. Bless, bless, bless this fellowship, I pray. And while heads are bowed right now, just so I can be praying for you. If you've prayed that prayer today, and either this is the first time that you've ever prayed to accept the gift of Jesus, or you've not walked with him for quite a while, and this really is an honest recommitment, while heads are bowed, could you just... Slip your hand up a little bit and say, that was me today. I, I prayed that prayer today. Get eye contact with me and just say, all right, that was me today. I see you. 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 God bless you. God bless you. God bless you, bro. God bless you, bro. God bless you. Oh, Lord, for these today who have responded, Lord, secure cement in them. Set their faces like flint before you, Lord, in such a way, Lord, that they would be so committed, Lord, that they would amaze themselves. By the power of your Holy Spirit, exude your strength through them, Lord, and make us bold to declare not just an empty tomb, not just a cross, but a God who is unique, walked in the flesh, tempted in every way, yet without sin, died on the cross for us, fully died, fully rose, fully lives, and fully lives in us. Oh Lord God, set us on fire to do that now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.